Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of 747 Conversations, a show all about the lost art of human connection. We talk gratitude, empathy, acknowledge the stories of the people that helped us get to where we are today. We're so glad that you decided to join us again. Today is going to be a very special episode because it's with someone who devotes her entire life to the principles of which we believe in. If you've joined us on previous episodes, you'll see we've interviewed some of the brightest founders on the planet, asking them what makes their brand of human connection so special. Well, our guest today wrote the entire book on it, Susan McPherson. Today, we're talking about her newest book, The Lost Art of Connecting, the Gather, Ask, Do Method for Building Meaningful Business Relationships. This is how good she is at the principles in this book. I've known about her, heard about her, yearned to meet her. For so many years, her brand of connection is so authentic that people have no choice than to just talk about her and the authentic spirit she brings to all her relationships. She's a serial connector, an angel investor, corporate responsibility expert. She's the founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, communication consultancy based on the intersection of brands and social impact. So if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, and you need storytelling, partnership creation, visibility to large corporations and social enterprises, Susan is your gal. I loved reading her book over the last couple weeks, and it just re-inspired me to dive deeper into serving you, the people. So Susan, What an honor it is to have you on this podcast, and what a great conversation we're going to have. Welcome to the 747 Conversations. Chris, thank you so much, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. I am a blushing shade of pink, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that was lovely. Truly, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Now, Susan, we're going to dive into your book in just a bit, but we always start with the same question. We ask it to every guest whether we're sitting down with Bill Gates, Michael Dell, or four-year-old kids on Skid Row, this is the question we dedicate our entire life to. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? Who have you never thought to thank? Well, that's a difficult question. Who have I never thought to thank? Um, because I never go a day without thanking my late mom, who I kind of continue to live her memory and everything she taught me every day. But to think about who I haven't thanked is is going to be challenging for me to think right off the top of my head. Um, Can I make it a a couple of people? (laughs) Can I? um, And maybe I should have, if I had known this was coming, I could have prepped. (laughs) But I get it. Never. (laughs) Um, 
You know, I would have to say my my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Craftsons, um, who gave me a D in conduct. <laughs> um, and I'm going way, way, way back. Probably fifth grade was 1975, maybe. <laughs> uh, and as horrifying as it was to get a D in conduct, I now thank my lucky stars. Because when I came home that day with the report card that I thought I was going to have a ruined life because I had never gotten a D before. And, 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 and it's strange to see a D when everything else is A's and B's um, and probably a couple of C's. But I'll never forget that I actually wasn't punished for the D. And my late father basically said, no, that, that's a good thing. You need to speak up. And, you know, that was a very unusual thing for, for a girl to be told, certainly by her father. Um, and yes, of course, I thank my dad for that, but I thank actually my fifth grade teacher for punishing me in that way, because I have carried that speaking up, um, all the way through to what year are we in now? 2021. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how do you define conduct, by the way? Tell me what, what did you do to get this D? (laughs) I guess I talked a lot. And, <laughs> and, and so your family had a, had developed a, a certain kind of psychological trust and safety that it was all right to fail as long as you learn something from it. Yes. Well, I think part of that was because my dad was a professor and mm-hmm. um, he believed the most important thing was to constantly be curious in fact, if I ever came home, you know, working on some sort of project, he was a history professor to be specific, but if I came home and asked him a question about someone famous in history, and generally they were men, um, but he would, instead of answering the question or telling me the story, he would instead come home with six books from the library hmm. um, with this notion of, you know, you need to learn, you need to be asking questions. Um, and, you know, I, I do talk a lot actually in the book about this importance of leading a life of curiosity. Mm-hmm. It, it, it enables us to continue to want to learn, to want to um, be inquisitive of others so we can better understand them and then actually better understand ourselves. I guess we'll actually segue to dive in because I actually, <laughs> this was the first question anyways, that I was going to to talk about on page 60 and page 61. Um, literally the title of that section is listen. No, really listen. And the whole section is talking about how human beings are notoriously bad at listening and how you really, do you know what my job title is in my company? No. Chief question asker. I love that. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and you talk about, um, you know, giving people the tools to, you know, ask good questions. My question to lead us into this section is, at what point did you go from needing to be the one that needed to speak up so much so that you were speaking up enough to get a D to then being over the course of such a great career, knowing that your listening skills and questions is actually what would set you apart. 
Okay, this is kind of a silly story. So just brace yourself. Um, <laughs> I am tiny. Okay, my license says I'm five foot. So we'll just leave it at that. Although, on, on, you know, in, in 2021 on Zoom chats, I've been five foot nine. Just, just <laughs> um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was coming of age professionally, and I would walk into conference rooms, boardrooms, convention halls, you know, you name it, cocktail parties. Nobody could see me. Mm. Uh, Especially, I mean, you know, men, gener- this is a generalization, but they're generally taller than women. And if I was to walk up to a fella, you know, he, he, he just, again, just to reiterate, he would not see me. So one of the um, engagement strategies I would use would be to start asking questions. Because mm. inevitably, when you ask questions of people, they tend to be a little more interested. Now, again, generalization. But I also learned if I was going to ask questions, I had to force myself to listen. Um, and in research for the book, I, I learned how woefully bad we all are at listening, myself included. Um, and you know, if there was a group here, I would ask for a show of hands and say, how many of us sometimes are listening or hearing? And then we start to go off and think about what we're gonna have for dinner or mm. you know, dishes that are in our sink piling up, you know, mean like just ridiculous things when instead. And then, of course, this past year, the art of listening has, has taken a nosedive because we've had so many distractions, okay? Um, email running, you know, all our social media apps, many of us who have been working from home who have children or pets, you know, I mean, it's, it's like a, a, a whack-a-mole to try to listen better. But I learned if I was going to meaningfully engage with these people that I were at, was asking questions of, I had to pay attention and listen to signals so that I could then be successful at following up. Um, And obviously in the book, the methodology I put forth, which is gather, ask, do, you can't get from the ask to the do if you are not taking in the signals and the data that somebody Mm -hmm. is telling you when you ask the questions. So for your listeners, I highly recommend um, listening to Dr. Julian Treasures for Mm -hmm. TED Talk because he really helps us become better listeners and teaches us to not be always um, reacting or preparing to react to what somebody's saying, but rather taking in the data. But even talking about data and Dr. Treasure, you learned a pretty interesting thing just by studying the amount of views each TED Talk of his had gotten, I think, across 100 million TED Talk views, there was a disparity between titles of different things. What does it mean that more people were clicking on one specific title when you'll tell us what those title differentiators were? And what does it mean to then write a book encouraging people to go upstream against what human behavior has been predicting recently? we tend to, you know, always be thinking about what we're going to do next, rather than paying attention. And that is what became painfully clear when we looked at the numbers of which TED Talks people, which of his talks were. Um, and it, it's human, it's human nature. We're, you know, we're tending to think like, what is in, what's, it, what's in this for me? And mm-hmm. what I'm putting forth in the book is this whole notion of pivoting to how can I be helpful, right? So you can't be helpful to somebody if you don't actually take in the 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 challenges they're facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write about um, actually learning what makes people tick. Yeah. 
Now, we have a word for that, empathy, right? Empathy is the art of imaginatively stepping into the shoes of another person, understanding their feelings and perspectives, and using that knowledge to guide your action. So you're famous for asking, how can I help you? Instead of networking, where it's all about what can you get, it's about connecting and learning how can you serve. When did you first realize that serving others before you served yourself is ultimately how you would build profitable relationships in the long run? Well, I had been <clears throat> I had been doing it all my life because it actually just was second nature. Um, I think you recall, you know, I grew up in a house where both my parents every morning would lay out the five local newspapers and yesterday's New York Times, and they would be madly clipping um, for articles that reminded them of relatives, former students or current students. My dad, as mentioned, was a professor, um, relatives, et cetera. And then they, once they clipped them, they would go to their respective manual typewriters and put them in envelopes and keep the U.S. Postal Service in business. And I just assumed everybody did that. So, you know, once I was of age professionally, I continued to do that. And of course, once we had the technology tools um, to do so, I became much more efficient than, you know, and yes, I do still write letters. I find that, you know, jotting postcards is one of the most wonderful ways to reach out and touch people. But for efficiency's sake, of course, email, text, WhatsApp, you name it. But in terms of actually quantifying how it has been, quote unquote, a um, an asset to me professionally, um, I founded my company at age 48, almost eight years ago. And about three years ago, when I put forth this book proposal is when I looked back at our revenues and 95% of the business had been inbound. Mm. So what that told me was that wasn't luck. I mean, obviously luck always plays in some sort of weird facet, but this was a result of the people that I met with, that I supported, that I introduced, that I connected in my 20s, in my 30s, hmm. and, and my early 40s. And it wasn't like at the time, Chris, it wasn't like I was like, oh, you know, in 20 years, I'm going to be running a company and I'm going to come call it. I mean, it wasn't even a speck in my like back of my whatever part of the brain that is where you do future future thinking. Um, so if anybody needs proof in the pudding, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm, being an entrepreneur is challenging regardless, but you do need a community of meaningful connections to be successful. And notice I didn't say network. I said community, communities, concentral, concentric circles overlapping people that you have built relationships with, which clearly you do every day. It's so cool to hear you in hindsight, realize that the power of your connections and adding value to others is ultimately what led to your success. You know, to the young kids that feel like they have nothing of value to offer the world, that they have nothing to speak about, nothing to question, nothing to this, but they know that some people in their circles might like knowing each other. So you suggest maybe that they bring those people together and maybe you host a dinner party. Maybe you host a theme specific or topic specific discussion. 
how do they see you when they know that you know people? How do they see you when they know, oh my gosh, I could probably go to Susan because she probably knows the right person I need to talk to. How how do they perceive you in that situation, even if you're in your 20s? Well, first of all, one of the the exercises I suggest in the quote-unquote gather phase of the gather as do is doing this really self-reflection exercise. Mm -hmm. Especially important for people who, like you said, don't feel they have a lot to offer. Well, I have, I am a fervent belief that every single person on this planet has multitude of things to offer, but sometimes you have to do that kind of self-reflection to figure mm. it out. I also suggest that you actually ask the people closest to you, your families, your friends, your colleagues, if you, uh, you know, are, are part of a faith-based community, or if you volunteer for nonprofits, ask people around you, because if you don't know, they will tell you. I would even go so far as ask your dog. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, because I think before we can really meaningfully connect others, we really need to have a sense of what our our secret sauces. In the book, I call it our chief differentiating factors. Um, And I think then that empowers you because I've I've had a number of people during this kind of book. I don't know. I can't call it a book tour because I'm sitting in my living room. But I've been, you know, asked like, well, you know, I'm, I haven't worked yet. I'm just graduating college. What do I have to offer? And, you know, I always joke. I'm like, well, you know, what you can offer me is a lesson in TikTok. <laughs> you know, but I mean, this is where it, it really, you know, maybe, maybe you speak a foreign language or two or three. You know, maybe you've traveled to certain parts of the world. Maybe you've lived in certain parts of the world. I mean, all of these things are are your superpowers, your secrets, mm-hmm. your experiences, because that is what we bring to the table. You know, it's so cool. My greatest childhood insecurity was that I was always the last one called at the party. My invite was always somehow lost in the mail. Even just, even just this quarter, I wasn't even invited to my own team's holiday party. What? <laughs> even though I paid for it. <laughs> I am constantly being, even just this weekend, we all went out to the, to the bar and they took a round of tequila shots and I was in the bathroom. I get back and my, my cousin, Rachel looks at me and said, Oh no, we all took the shots without him. That's his greatest insecurity. My, my question to that is, do you realize that when you write in chapter two of your book, invite yeah. to yeah. get invited, you're actually solving a lot of people's greatest childhood insecurities. Well, because I had them too, Chris. Tell me about that. Well, when I would come back to school on Monday, you know, uh, after the weekend, you would learn about all the parties you weren't invited to. (sighs) I mean, clearly, and there's nothing, there's nothing worse than feeling like you don't belong. And, you know, I was always that, that child who, when I saw somebody sitting by him or herself or their self at the, at, you know, at a lunch table, I would always go and sit with them because mm. just my heart just bled. Like, I don't know why, um, but, you know, I've taken that into adult life. And I, I, um, I always found that the way around that is literally like you were saying, create your own. And I call mm. it FOMO instead of FOMO and JOMO, not what you think it means, which is joy of missing out because nobody wants to miss out or at least most people, but instead turn it upside down and change it to the joy of meeting others. Mm. You're an introvert or 
you know, or shy or an extrovert or whatever the word is of in between, you don't have to do it and invite 50 people, which can seem terrifying to somebody who may be shy, but instead invite two or three people and then just ask them to invite one person. Mm -hmm. Voila, you have a gathering and you no longer are waiting to be invited. I wish I had your book six years ago when we were just getting started. You know, at, at our very first dinner, we had a simple rule. The first time you come, you come alone. The second time you come, you bring a friend. After that, you're eligible to nominate someone. And how cool is it that most people in this world think we have to get to a position of power by cheating someone else or by bullying our way into something or by being the technical expert or the one with the greatest IQ. But you actually write in your book that when you become the leader, doing the hosting, the connecting, the gathering, people will begin to perceive you as a proactive leader. I mean, can everybody just do that to take leadership in their own life? Yeah, absolutely. And But I want to remind you, this isn't you having to 100 people, right? This is taking the initiative to maybe go to three or four and then having them, if you want it to, it doesn't have to be large because mm-hmm. I'm all about going deep and meaningful, not mm-hmm. broad and transactional. Yeah, you write about the failure to launch in your book and how there might be some self-perceived anxiety around picking a date, who's going to come, what do I serve? What's your first step, even if you're going to, obviously, I'm really focused on your gather part of gather ass too, because we're gatherers. But how do you get people through that initial anxiety? What's the first step they should do to hosting a gathering? First and foremost, I think they you have to explain the joy that they're going to receive, right? Hmm. Obviously, if the JOMO. (laughs) Well, that's it. And, um, you know, not I don't, you know, not everyone is going to want to quote unquote host, but what I want to try to make people understand is this, when you bring a few people involved, you're not, the sole responsibility doesn't fall on you. So it's a little less scary. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, I, I mean, in this day and age, I think it's really important to focus on some sort of theme, whether, you know, you are uh, supporting a nonprofit or a cause or perhaps somebody running for office or perhaps, you know, a particular, um, you know, a, a book that you want to focus on, you know, just because then the, the onerous comes off of you, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to be like leading the conversation about, you know, and, and coming up with talking points, et cetera. If there's a, like a general theme you can gather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You write about that in your book. Tell me the strategic benefit of bringing people together around a particular issue, knowing that people buy from people, not from companies. And if you could build a relationship with the individual, no matter what company you work at, they're going to be loyal to you. Tell me about that. Well, I, again, I, and I should confess, well, I shouldn't even say it like that because it's something to be proud of. I am a trained salesperson. Um, In the early nineties, I, you know, had, not only did I learn how to quote unquote sell, um, I had, I managed a territory where we were the game in town that no one knew. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the, that was one of the, the, the first places in my life or first times in my life that I learned this power of convening and the importance of doing that um, so that you could build relationships and also 
get to know people, not just, you know, from a quote unquote business standpoint. And that's also where that line started to blur of the personal and the professional. Mm -hmm. I started to actually befriend potential clients or current clients or people I was selling to. Um, And what I learned during that experience is when people begin to have trust in you, they are much more likely to, to of course, purchase from you, but also recommend you to others. Mm -hmm. Then those concentric circles build upon each other. Mm -hmm. Buy more, promote more, demonstrate more loyalty. You know, Google, this internet company, Google founded in their promotion to emotion study that buyers with a strong emotional tie to your brand are five times more likely to consider purchasing. 13 times more likely to pay a pre, uh, to, to, to actually purchase and 30 times more likely to pay a premium. So what Susan's talking about is when PR Newswire she was working at was an East Coast operation and she opened up the West Coast office and they were up against Business Newswire, which is a West Coast operation with a small Orange County office. And she's saying, my God, I got to build community. I can I got to connect with people in a very authentic way so that they buy from me the individual instead of the idea that they want to buy from our competitor who has a strong West coast presence. I am so blown away that you remember all of this. (laughs) I'm serious from reading the book. Oh my God. Susan, I kid you not. I dreamed about your book. I've been thinking about (laughs) 20 years and even before I knew you, it answers so many of my questions. Now here's the question I have, because here's what happened. You know, for our listeners that don't know, you know, we like gathering people as well. We've used the dinner table to spark over 500,000 relationships in the last five years. And and I'll be honest, the goal is to make people cry. The goal is to provide a very authentic experience. And Susan, what happened to us is that when when we found something we were passionate about that solved my greatest childhood insecurities, gathering people this part of the book. When I realized that there were positive business benefits to it, that Mm -hmm. passion, it started waning because it made it so easy to use it as a business strategy. Mm -hmm. At what point is there a detriment to being the one who's known for connecting people? Oh, I I don't know if I've gotten there yet. (laughs) Um, I will tell you, though, that many business leaders – have always made this a soft skill or put this in the soft skill bucket and delegate it to happy hours, right? Or, you know, to the annual sales conference. Um, and I think honestly, they're missing a tremendous opportunity because study, you know, it's studies I shared in the book showed that when people are, have it, when employees have deeper, mean, more meaningful relationships with one another, they are far more productive they are far more innovative. They are much more likely to stay at the company longer, and they are much more likely to recommend working at the company to others. Mm-hmm. So um, if you are in a senior role at an organization, whether it's a nonprofit or a corporation or you know social enterprise, what have you, I would behoove it of you to think of this as something much more important and actually make space for it. Mm. Especially right now, as we are in this like weird purgatory, like, you know, maybe a few months out from returning to some sense of normalcy, what that normalcy will be, I don't know. But 
like how do we elevate this to be intentional? How do we mm-hmm. make space for employees so they actually feel safe to be just a little bit more vulnerable? Um, because you cannot expect your employees to be that way if you're not uh, like doing it yourself, if you're not making space for it, if you're not making people feel safe. Um, because we know, you know, culturally speaking, many, many, many people, and for good reason, don't feel they can bring their kind of quote unquote self to work. You know, it's interesting. You're you're actually talking about things that can help prevent companies from falling apart when times are good again. And here, here's what you write about. You talk about how during times of crisis, people come together around a common cause. Let's save the company. Let's help each other out. But when times are good, you don't connect as well because there's less of that communal as Sebastian Junger calls it, the brotherhood of pain, the community of sufferers. See, isn't he great? Gosh, and yes, and he's dear friends with my dear friend, Gail Lamone. Mm-hmm. I met him several years oh, ago. Oh, so my God. So you actually want people to connect, not based on what you do. How you doing, Mom? Oh, no, you're good. I'm just on the podcast. Oh, you can take it. Perfect. Thank you. Um, you you advocate that people don't shouldn't connect as employees based on what they do or how they do it, but as Simon Sinek says, why you do it, and then find out those causes that the employees care about, and actually give them time off to serve, like paid time off to serve. How does that help the company? Well, first of all, when you volunteer, you learn skills of where Mm. you're here, right? I mean, you know, over the years for me, whenever I would move from city to city, which I did many times, I would get involved in nonprofits to actually meet other people. But the skills that I learned from doing so, I brought back to the organization. But also, numerous studies show that when employees are volunteering, they feel a higher calling. Mm. and company is responsible for do, for for making that time available they are likely and again this isn't just everyone but they are likely to be that much more um, productive when they come back to their regular mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um and you 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 know companies that are literally providing you know one day off of service so many hours of service and tracking that you see productivity excel year over year mm-hmm. Isn't just me making this stuff up. No, an inspired employee is actually 225% more highly engaged. That leads to an average increase of 21% productivity, 20%. You know, it, it brings it back to what you're talking about. You know, this art of connecting has always been seen as a soft skill, um, as some like emotional IQ kind of thing. But here's the, the dirty truth. Eight out of 10 top performers have high emotional intelligence. People with high emotional intelligence earn $29,000 more per year on average than people with low emotional intelligence. So what you're talking about, teaching people, is actually great for business. You know, you write about self-efficacy and you write about time perception. Most people these days are so busy, strung out, Zoom meetings all day that they may be listening to this saying, Susan... I don't have the time in the world to go volunteer. I've only got 24 hours a day. How does volunteering and donating your time to others actually help rewire your perception of how much time you have on this earth? Yeah. Well, 
I, I, I'll go one step further and not just volunteering, but meaningfully connecting with others and making mm -hmm. that actually makes you more efficient. Mm. Uh, and here's why. The deeper and not just networking, because when you network, quote unquote, you're just yeah. surface information and being very transactional. I'm not I'm not anti-networking, but there there is a there is a delineation. I am. When you meaningfully connect with people, you learn more about them, meaning that when someone comes to you and asks you for help, guess what? It isn't you doing all the helping. It means you have a greater data pool, a greater mm -hmm. cabinet from which to pull from. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you could actually then find the person who knows coral restoration when somebody comes and asks. Or you would know the person that knows about you know, um, trigonometry. I don't know how I just thought of that because I haven't <laughs> thought of that word and I can't tell you how. <laughs> Not my finest hour. Um, the notion is, is, is you, you, your, your bag of tricks grows. Mm -hmm. So it's you having to do all the helping. And I would say with volunteering or supporting organizations in your local community or perhaps that affect your local community, actually provide skills that, again, you can bring back to work. And this isn't something you have to do every day. I would say make time one day a month, okay? Take two hours and, and set aside. That, I, I really believe, you know, at least at some point in our lives, we can do that. Hmm. Pandemic, but when this ends, it's something we can make, make as a priority. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend those of you who are just coming out of college to be a tremendous place for you to meet other people to build your communities and probably even more importantly meet people who aren't just like you mm -hmm. yeah so so it sounds like there's power in diverse non-incestuous networks and i'll go so far as to say it sounds like you talk about there being power and even reconnecting with people you haven't connected with in a long time that might be considered a dormant or a weak tie. Tell me about the power of that. I mean, Stanford University did a 44-page sociological study on this called The Strength of Weak Ties, and you write about it so efficiently in this book. Tell me about this principle. Well, the thing is, we sometimes forget that we actually have our own communities that we can pull from. Mm -hmm. But I think we're blocked by the fact that, oh gosh, I haven't reached out to them in so long. How can I, you know, is it okay? And I go so far as right now, we have every excuse in the world. We can all blame the damn pandemic. Let's take advantage of it, right? Let's get some good out of it. And it's a perfect opportunity to reach back out to people that you might have been three years, five years, 10 years. And for God's sakes, use the pandemic and say, I'm so sorry this year has been tough, but I also started to me to go down the path of realizing how important the connection mm. that I might not have. And you may learn things that you never even knew, or that person might be doing something that could be extraordinarily helpful, not to you, but maybe your best friend or colleague. Mm -hmm. So there is so much to gain. And again, I want to make sure those who are listening, who are terrified by the thought of, I don't have time. This could be a text that you send. Mm -hmm. okay. It could mean, it, all, it could be as simple as, you know what, Catherine? We haven't spoken several years, but you popped in my brain and I wanted to say hello. How long does it take to do that? I mean, you're right. It, it you know, it doesn't take much time at all, but 
there's just such a perception that people think that type of communication is awkward or they underestimate the benefits the recipient is going to get on that reach out. Well, I can tell you what has helped me get through the last 13 months. And I've been alone this entire time. Mm. I don't have parents. I don't have children and I don't have a significant other. So, Mm. and you can tell probably just in this 45 minutes we've been chatting, I'm not an introvert. I fantasize about being an introvert and in my next life, maybe I'll be an introvert, but it has been extraordinarily challenging for me. I would never go so far as to say it, 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 that it would come close to people who lost their livelihoods, who lost loved ones, you know, and all the, all the challenges we have faced this past year um, as, a, as a country, as for God's sakes, the entire planet. But, you know, just to, to relate to this conversation, what I have done to help, you know, deal with my own kind of sorrow or sadness is every day I would reach out to three to five people very intentionally, a quick WhatsApp text, phone call, and just say, I'm thinking of you. I'm curious how you're doing or if there's anything I could be doing to help. And there were two reasons I did this. One, to send a bit of joy, a bit of that dopamine, but two, also raise my hand and be like, don't forget me. I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, and, and I say to people who like, well, how did you have time? I managed to have time to brush my teeth every day. Mm-hmm. There's so many things we can do once we plan it into our day. Right? Most people don't pl- plan to fail. They fail to plan. You, you write about one of my favorite topics, gratitude. And Steve Jobs once said he can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. And you talk about how most people don't even realize we're sitting on these powerful networks. We just can't tap into it. My question to you is, if someone wanted to show their gratitude to you today, hopefully after reading this book, or if you send it around to some of your old friends, what is the love language you like to receive their gratitude in? Oh, that's a great question. And as somebody who who always loves to help, I have a difficult time asking for help. So honestly, even though, even though part, part two is literally ask. <laughs> the art of asking no i know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i do i do go into that whole notion of when you are asking others how you can help it is so much easier than when you do need to ask for help but in terms of the, the greatest gratitude that i can be getting i think if people start following some of these ethos and people actually lead with how I, could be I, meaning them, could be helpful to others. That, to me, would be the greatest joy and gratitude I could get, is, is thinking maybe this book is having just a wee little impact on how people choose to go forth. And, and, and I think also just realize how vitally powerful it is to make connections, because it isn't just the actual um, process of the introduction, but it's the stories that continue on. It's the companies that get funded. It's the nonprofits that are able to exist. It's the people who find jobs because of this. It's all the magic that happened mm-hmm. as those people were connected. That is joy to me. You've certainly done that for a lot of people. And I can only imagine, you know, what, what joy you know, it, it must bring you yet 
even five minutes ago, we talk about the sorrow and sadness that you felt in these last 13 months. And we don't ever, ever like to see that. But thank you for being vulnerable enough to communicate that because you write about how being authentically you and being original is your superpower. That's right. You do a wonderful job of it. Well, Susan, if your fifth grade teacher was with us on the call today, what would you say to her? (laughs) I guess I would say thank you, but I would also say that D in conduct was a good thing. It it stood for damn, damn good. (laughs) Damn good. I like that. Marcus Aurelius once said, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. That D on the the report card, the CEO who was just fired, which then scares the crap out of people, but gives the opportunity for people to rise up in his absence. Um, These are all blessings. Sometimes it takes forever to see these blessings in hindsight, uh, but definitely the art of connecting with others and being there through your dark moments is what will help us all get through these times. I mean, here's, here's the honest truth. This is not the biggest thing the world has ever faced. We've survived far greater plagues. We've survived far bigger periods of social unrest and, and usurping. And, um, and we will get through it, but we have to do it together and we have to do it through a, a really genuine art of human connection. And Susan's book, look, we, we didn't do the technical, hey, here on page 81, here is this question, here page 34 is this question, but I wouldn't have been able to get through this podcast if I didn't read her book. It gave words to everything we believe in. And if you somehow subscribe to our podcast because you somehow believe in the crazy things that we believe in, well, then you need to read this book. It will help prophesize and normalize at the same time what you believe in. You're here because you genuinely give a hoot about people. And sometimes it takes someone like Susan to come around and just put it into paper for you to realize what you've been thinking all along. You're on the right path. Susan, any last words in closing? Deep gratitude to you, Chris. And I'm in awe of everything you've created. And I am would love to support you any which way I can, as well as your community. So thank you. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And to all those listening, we thank you for tuning in. We've got some really groovy folks coming up in the pipeline. So hit that subscribe button, share this episode with your friends, especially with the ones that feel the way Susan's felt these last 13 months, the ones that are lonely, sad, sorrow, craving, genuine human connection. Give them this. It'll be the greatest permission they'll have to take that first step. Oftentimes getting from zero to one is harder than getting from one to 10. Take it small as Susan writes. Don't do anything grand or epic, but reference this book for for good strategies to overcome. We'll see you on the next episode. We thank you for tuning in. I hope y'all are having a phenomenal day on earth. Remember, it's your world. Go explore and we'll see you next episode. 